Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are recording today from various locations around Winnipeg, all within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing 10th of December by George Saunders. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, though I'm currently found at the Henderson Library, and while I'm not the king of if, I am a member of the Royal Court. Across the screen for me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, the branch head of the Louis Riel Library, and to paraphrase the scientists who work at the Spiderhead facility, it's not even us, it's library science. The mandates of library science plus the dictates. Sometimes library science sucks. And across the screen for me is... Um, hi, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of Millennium Library, and I'm uh, hoping my Veriloose is kicked in. And across the stream from me is... Hi, my name's Kirsten, and I'm the branch head at the Harvey Smith Library. And uh, yes, I have experienced a May to December relationship. I understand what that is really what that really means anyway are you the may or the december that's what i want to know uh, uh i think i'm the may oh i don't know what that means i don't know what it means either a good book can carry me away from an And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. If you want to tell us a short story, you can find our email address and all of our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. If you hang around till the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Normally, Trevor gives us a summary of the book, but there are 10 stories in this collection, and we're going to skip that today and just go to Kirsten to give us a bio of the author. Okay, George Saunders, American short story writer, novelist, and essayist, born 1958 in Amarillo, Texas, where his family owned a pizza restaurant. He then grew up near Chicago, where his family owned a place called Chicken Unlimited. He received his Bachelor of Science in Geophysical Engineering, or specifically Exploration Geophysics, from Colorado School of Mine in 1981. And then seven years later, in 1988, he continued his education as one does and received an MA in creative writing from Syracuse University. <laughs> That's sort of a uh, a normal progression, I think, from uh, <laughs> geophysical engineering to creative writing. So he got that MA in 1988, but from 1989 until 1996, he worked for Radian International, an environmental engineering firm. And for a time, he also worked with an oil exploration crew in Sumatra. In his 20s, he saw himself as an objectivist and more of a Ayn Rand guy. But he says that when he went to Asia, he saw folks who were genuinely poor and suffering. And he tells a story of being in Singapore for a break. And he was walking back to his hotel in the middle of the night when he stopped by an excavation site. And he saw these shadows scuttling around in a hole. 
And then I realized the shadows were old women working the night shift. And I thought, oh, Anne Rand doesn't quite account for this. He is now a student of Nyingma Buddhism, considered the oldest of all Tibetan Buddhist traditions. And this tradition also considers itself very non-political, non-partisan. When he finished with Radiant International in 1996, that was also at the age of 37 when he published his first book, a collection of short stories called Civil War Land in Bad Decline. Since 1997, he's been on the faculty of Syracuse University teaching uh, for the past 20 years a creative writing class on the Russian short story in translation. And his latest book, published in 2021, is actually about these experiences, and it's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. He says of that class that he has a connection with these Russian writers, with the simplicity, the way they take on big topics, and the moral ethical core of the stories. As for other literary influences, he has also said that he's inspired by the absurdist comic tradition of Mark Twain, Monty Python, Steve Martin, but also the strain of minimalist American fiction writing like Ernest Hemingway and Raymond Carver. He himself has said If I can be more efficient with the reader, that implies a greater intimacy with the reader. Maybe we can discuss that later, (laughs) if that's actually the case. He's won multiple, multiple awards, including um, in 2006, he was awarded the 500,000 MacArthur Fellowship, or the Genius Grant. And in 2017, his first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the Booker Prize. The MacArthur Foundation describes him as a highly imaginative author who continues to influence a generation of young writers and brings to contemporary American fiction a sense of humor, pathos, and literary style all his own. He describes himself as having a natural enthusiasm for things. He says, I like being alive. That's a bit cheerleaderish. And he believes, as he says in his acknowledgments for the 10th of December, that goodness is not only possible, it is our natural state. And I would encourage folks to watch his commencement address from 2013 to Syracuse University. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, It focuses on the theme of kindness and asking why aren't we kinder? And he actually then wrote a book on that uh, that was based on that saying, congratulations, by the way, some thoughts on kindness. What a life, what interesting experiences. And uh, with all of his focus on goodness and kindness, I would totally invite him over for dinner. Because even <laughs> though I might be intimidated, I think he's a very good, kind man and super interesting. So yes, totally a dinner guest. <laughs> so before we start talking about the book itself in general, uh, this was a recommendation we got from Toby. And so Could you tell us a little bit about what you enjoyed about this book or what kind of prompted you to select this book? Um, Sure. I read this book when it first came out. So what, 2012? And I really, really liked it. And I don't normally reread books. So as I was looking for something to recommend, I wanted to pick something that I'd read a long time ago and remembered liking um, to give myself a chance to to reread something. I'm a big fan of satire and black comedy and short stories. And so this has it all. Mm-hmm. 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 And we've never done a short story collection. 
Yeah. Either. So this, it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I liked it because I was off the hook for writing a summary this month. So. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing, I, I often feel like short stories are neglected. Uh, I know when I've done reader's advisory for people in the past at the library and people are coming in looking for things to read, I usually focus on novels or literary nonfiction or something like that. And short stories often just, I don't know, kind of slip by. Do you guys read short stories regularly or periodically or rarely? I feel like I've been reading more short stories lately, especially in this last year. I was finding it at first kind of hard during the pandemic to pick up a novel and read it. So I was picking up books of short stories or a short story and just reading it and feeling at least satisfied to have read a story, <laughs> but <I'd> only <laughs> being able to sort of tackle a short story. Dennis, your comment about uh, short stories being overlooked remind me of something that Barbara Kingsolver said once where... Uh, she just couldn't understand why short stories weren't more popular, considering that our world is so fast and people are into these 30 second sound bites and tweets and short. And, uh, you know, so why wouldn't why do people tend to gravitate to longer in-depth novels? Why wouldn't short stories be more popular? And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask all you guys, I don't read them a whole lot. And then when I started this collection, I started to think, like, I don't really know if I know how to read short stories. And I'm wondering, <laughs> like, what, how did you got, did you, did you read them sort of one at a time and give yourselves intentional space between them? Did you read them? Did you binge them? We have a couple of comments from Facebook that I, we can get to in a bit, but I'm just curious what you guys, how you approach the short story collection. I definitely felt like when I started a story, I had to finish it. It's like a, like a chapter in a book, but more contained and with a beginning, middle and end. And it just felt like I couldn't just leave it, um, even though some of them are quite lengthy. So I would even sort of set myself up with, okay, I have enough time. This is this many pages. I'm going to finish this. And then even if I had more time, I kind of wouldn't want to keep going because I needed to sit and just think about that one for a while before getting immersed in the world of another one. Mm -hmm. I found a similar type of thing. Like I, and I, I actually found this got in the way of me reading a bit with a novel. I know I'm not going to finish the whole thing so I can read. And even if it's a short bit, that's okay. But with this one, I've kind of felt like, oh, I've only got like five minutes. I'm not going to start a new story because I don't want to interrupt it. But then I ended up having to do that anyway, just to get it read in time. And it worked. So, you know, you can totally do that. But there did seem to be a bit of internal pressure to try to finish the story. <laughs> When I'm reading novels, I find that I'm a really fast reader and, and I'll even skip over things or I'll gloss over, you know, um, paragraphs or something. And you cannot do that when you're reading a short story, especially mm -hmm. these short stories, like, mm -hmm. because every word is precise and every sentence is um, meaningful and you could totally miss something very important if you just sort of gloss, glossed over it. So, yeah, you can't be a lazy reader with the short story. Did you, did you guys read the stories in the order that they uh, appeared in the book or did you jump mm -hmm. around? You got read no, in all the order. Go in order. Did uh, you yeah. jump I, around? Well, I, what I did was I read sticks first because it was the shortest one. <laughs> and it was only yeah. about a, a page and a half. And so I just thought, you know, I only, I just want to just, just get kind of like, just get a taste, just dip the toe in. <laughs> and then after I read that, then I went back and then I read them in, book order. So I just was curious how you guys did it. So 
I mean, I had read sticks before because for our tales at night, our adult story time, I'm always looking for really short stories to be able to read aloud. So I had read that one before. So it's funny you should say that because when I read it, I said to myself, this might be a really good candidate for a, a monologue for tales at night uh, because it's yeah, so, yeah. it packs everything in. We can talk about it individually yeah. later. But uh, yeah. um, so on Facebook, we had a couple of responses to the general question about short stories. Amir, Pulo uh, said that uh, I like reading the whole collection like music albums of old. I think the individual stories and the order they are presented uh, tell a larger tale. So that's their take. And Eileen Gilbert says uh, it well it depends on the author and the theme of the collection, whether she likes to read them individually or as a collection. She says sometimes short stories allow me to linger in a make-believe world or catch up with what characters are doing. So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to talk about this collection as a whole, like what Amira said about were they presented as part of a larger tale or, you know, thematically what was connecting them. And um, yeah, I think that will will be an interesting, uh, interesting. I I have a theory about that, too. My personal headcanon as I was going through the, the book is that these stories all took place in the same small town in the U.S. and the same week. Oh. Hmm. oh. That, 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 that's in my head, and I can't shake it, and nothing in the stories disproves it. Right. They're, they did seem to take place in the same type of universe, right? Like, the oh. the background kind of dystopia of that world, if, if we want to go with that phrase, just seemed kind of consistent to me. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I was definitely looking for connections, almost in the point where I was really excited. I, I saw one because that crazy story that's just like an email to employees mm-hmm. about about keeping, <laughs> keeping faith and and you know cleaning the shelf. And it's signed by a guy called Todd. Cleaning and, the shelf. Yeah, cleaning cleaning the, and, the and, shelf. and then there's another. There's a Todd that appears in another story. I thought, oh my god, is this? I think in the uh, the uh, the one with the diaries, but then a different last name. So that that was not. I thought, oh, that could be the connection. That's the same company, but no, it wasn't. And then, but I have to think that nightlife, the uh, the drug that's administered in my chivalric mm-hmm. fiasco, I feel like it must have been developed at Spiderhead. In my head, <laughs> yes, it, 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 sure. it, there's no other. Yeah, I think that was a pretty strong connection there. But absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a really, really nice tie in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we want to talk about favorite stories? Like, since there's 10 stories and they all cover different things, we won't be able to talk about all of the stories in depth. But what were your favorites? I really like Victory Lap. Um, I think that's yeah. that's one of my favorites and one of the ones that stands out from my first my first reading of the um, story. One thing that I didn't remember about the story and about the collection in general is how dark it is, you know, like, and I think you really get a taste of that in this story where, you know, the character is dancing along, say, speaking in French to herself, and then suddenly is getting abducted. Yeah, yeah, that was a good kickoff story because it, there there was one thing that I found very consistent about all the stories is that usually when it jumped into it, and he often starts and finishes in the heads of the characters, so you're not actually seeing from outside, you're seeing from inside their heads. The characters right at the beginning annoyed me so much. Like being in the head of a teen girl as she goes <laughs> fluttering around, it's like, oh, geez, am I going to have to be in this kid's head the whole time? And it's, oh, now I'm in a different kid's head. And oh, ah. 
But then by the end of the novel, it's like you sudden I'm sympathetic to these characters. I've like I care about them, and I'm I'm kind of disappointed that I was annoyed with them at the beginning. <laughs> and that, that happened in multiple stories, but it was really obvious here because I was like, eh, I might skip this story about partway through, just before the abduction kicked in. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's uh, he's amazing at writing these interior sort of monologues, mm -hmm. the interior thoughts of the characters. And each character is so different. And he, yeah, I, the, I was really impressed with that. And then especially in that story, Victory Lap, I mean, he was in the head of three different characters. <laughs> and it was all very well done. Like I didn't get mixed up as to who he was talking about or um he yeah. uh, it was it was really well written and i just think he really captured the personalities and like you said Dennis even if you were sort of annoyed with people initially then there was some point where you realize that everyone is just trying their best and um mm -hmm. i i almost felt like these were really interesting stories to be reading right now as well because as we're all i think trying to see the best in everyone and trying not to judge and you know and trying to be kind to each other even if other people are making decisions that we maybe don't agree with but this i almost felt like this gave me some insight into a whole broad range of folks that i could really empathize with when if i hadn't been able to get into their head i wouldn't have probably mm -hmm. yeah any other favorite stories? Well, I mean, I like Semplica Girl Diaries. That was, I mm -hmm. think, the longest story, was it? Maybe 10th of December was. And I, I had read that it took him 12 years to write this mm -hmm. story. And, well, I was so confused as I was reading it, like, what this SG, like, I didn't understand mm -hmm. what that was. And then as the sort of the reality of what this was, like, these sort of, you know, lawn ornaments using immigrant women on display, joined by a mental line, it's just so horrifying I thought it was a really, really interesting book. And again, you know, you could sort of, sort of empathize with this, this father who wanted to give his kids everything. And yet mm -hmm. only the one young girl could actually see how horrifying it was to have these SGs, like, as yeah. lawn ornaments. It was, yeah, that was a... I have to admit to being confused by SG at the beginning because yeah. I didn't make the connection between that and the title me of the too. book. Me too. Yeah, me too. And I'm trying, I spent half the time reading trying to think SG slave girl. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. what, what does it stand for? <laughs> that works. It's like, oh, Semplica girl. Um, yeah. And sometimes, but yeah. no, go, I was just going to say, Dennis, too. And sometimes with me, like if I miss the original definition, then I, usually it's on me. I'm like, oh, I'm, I, I, must, they must have said near the beginning. So I just keep reading, not realizing that. I think part of the the power of the story is that the horror slowly creeps up on us yeah. at different times, depending on when the when the penny drops for us. We're like, wait a second, this this is horrifying, and yet you're kind yeah. of it's like the frog that's put into uh, water and then slowly turned up to boil. Then the frog doesn't jump out. Like we're by the time we kind of see the whole picture of the horror, we've kind of seen it through this poor sap's eyes, and we almost are like. It's horrible, but you know, it's helping these people's families out. Like all the rationalization <laughs> that, and, and the other thing about that story I loved was just the, the style was written as a diary and, and the entries I made mean, the, the, the character sounded like he was talking like Cookie Monster a lot of the time, <laughs> which kind of endeared himself to me. Like a lot of these characters who, if you look at them, 
like are not excellent people, but I could relate to so many of them. I don't know what that says about me, but, but, but you get into their heads and you're like, yeah, you know, that could be me that I could see myself in a situation like, like poor old, um, Al Rustin, uh, oh. and his, mm. uh, you know, his fascination and obsession with, uh, <laughs> the, um, the Larry Donfrey, the, uh, the realtor, it kind of had a real like death of a salesman feel to me about this guy. That's always, he's just trying to get his, his little section of the American dream and, and then, yeah, yeah, you could, you see, I mean, I could relate to Al Rustin in so many ways. Uh, oh man, I don't know. Well, and, and talking about inner monologues too, like the Al Rustin especially stands out where he's on the, the catwalk or whatever, showing off his <laughs> gondolier mm-hmm. outfit or something. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and at first he's like, oh my gosh, like this is terrible. But then he was like, Oh, I heard that one whoop in the back. Oh, and then yeah. his whole inner monologue changes and he's like, yeah, I uh-huh. crushed it. And I, I was like, good for you. Good for <laughs> you. You know, and you're talking about George Saunders's use of words. I just, I wrote down here, pity whoops and mercy cheers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, that's just perfect. That's exactly what he got. But yeah, he didn't see it that way. You know, no. to him, the crowd was on his side. And well, he, he was having understand an- when. Internal yeah. battle then, between himself, yeah. And then when yeah. he got backstage and Larry Donfey came over and said, oh, don't worry about it, Ed. Uh, and we, no one's going to remember it. And he's like, what's he talking about? And he's like, do you call me Ed? You know? And then, yeah. like, <laughs> so he always had a different idea of what, how his little catwalk walk went. But, I oh, pulled gosh. out some of my favorite quotes from the various stories. And in that one particular, I have, the room made the sound a room makes when attempting not to laugh. Which is when he comes out. Yeah. That was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. He he did have a lot of great turns of phrase. Yes. Yeah. And I think, like, when you said um, American Dream, Trevor, like, I think that that's also sort of what was, um, I could see thematically, I mean, it was really a a harsh criticism of the capitalist society that we live in. And also just there's this, like, it's, there's such a disconnect between what everyone just hoped and dreamed for and thought that they would be able to get and then their reality. Like, you know, uh, so especially with the Simplica girls, Simplica, is that what it's? Simplica girl diaries, you know, like he was never going to get out of that life, but he just kept, you know, that American dream. If you just keep working hard enough, you know, which is just, such BS. And I mean, sorry, I was just going to actually read something too from that because he stood up, uh, stood looking up at the house, sad, thought, why sad? Don't be sad. If sad, we'll make everyone sad and have to do better. Be kinder. Start now. And so it's like, okay, I just need to, you know, fix my attitude and just work harder and I will get that American dream. And meanwhile, we're looking on going, yeah, buddy, it's not going to happen. Yeah. The, the theme of desperation, I think was, uh, very prevalent throughout many of the stories and Semplica girls really made that very clear. Like you're looking at it and you, the creeping horror of learning that these are human lawn ornaments gets to you, but also just seeing how stratified their neighborhood is, how much pressure there is to, keep up with the neighbors and the dangerous position that puts you in 
Also, the fact that they were suddenly desperately criminalized by the act of their daughter freeing that uh, the Semplica girls. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, not only do they have to worry about being bankrupt, but also all going to jail. <laughs> yeah. There's that, that one really eager detective the pri- they, that, that takes yeah. on the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they'll ignore it. This is a minor thing. It's like, nope, I'm sticking around. I've got nothing else to do. I'm going to just stay here and figure this out. <laughs> oh, boy. And, and then, you know, we, uh, you'd mentioned Kirsten in his bio about being efficient with the reader. That This is a story that cuts off right at that point where, okay, now they're trying to avoid being arrested by this detective, but it stops right there. You don't know what happens next. He just leads you up to this point and the rest is up to you now. Some novels I've read or uh, even some short stories, they give you a denouement at the end, right, where it kind of – and then afterwards this happened and everything was okay or, you know, nothing like that in any of his stories. It just cuts it right at a point where there's still more that could be said. Yeah, hopefully the family or the dad doesn't end up at Spiderhead. <laughs> yeah. He needs enough money to get into Spiderhead, though. That's right. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was the privileged. Yeah. yeah. The privileged. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, Spiderhead, I think, was my favorite story out of the oh, bunch. Because yeah? I've always been fascinated with, you know, human motivation and uh, mental processes and the idea that you could take chemicals and they alter your brain. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, very well known, but. Having something so targeted and specific and being able to control someone's actions, essentially taking away their agency on things that we generally consider extremely important, like who you like and uh, love and how you feel. Like <laughs> uh, You can see kind of the good idea, like, oh, okay, people get really depressed about this. We can help relieve their anxiety and depression and worry. And it's like, well, yeah, that's something we've been trying to do. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, we can just erase it from your life. We can – it's like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. How far are we going here? Yeah. I thought that was really amazing. Mm-hmm. In my sh- uh, chivalric fiasco, I did think it was funny when the janitor um, is sort of moved up to be a knight or whatever. He says, hooray, finally a medicated role. <laughs> so yeah this uh, you know and then that also obviously being connected to spiderhead uh the spiderhead story where yeah this these medications to help us do our jobs our tasks but we're more than just our jobs or tasks there's also this emotion and um and then he then becomes then this truth teller and he can't actually you know, hold that, hold that back in my chival- chivalric fiasco. I found a lot of his, the, the titles very hard to, hard to say. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, I remember reading somewhere once where he said that he likes to create sentences that jangle. And I, mm-hmm. now I know what that means. You know, he just, he, he'll choose a word that's not the first obvious word in a sentence, but yeah. uh, it just is the word that stands out. And within Spiderhead too, it's such an interesting, like it's so dark the premise and yet and we're dealing with people that have done terrible things already and then are having terrible things done to them and yet they're relatable uh even even the scientists that i misquoted at the beginning of the episode uh i had to laugh out loud when after uh rachel after she had that uh darkened flux and killed herself 
uh, I laughed out loud. I couldn't believe myself laughing when the one character says, is she dead? And the other one says, well, she's not the best. <laughs> and, and I just thought, man, what, like, that? yeah, I mean. Uh, dark. Dark, dark, <laughs> yeah. dark. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, just one thing I found really interesting about Spiderhead um, was the idea of consent. The fact that the characters needed to actually consent yeah. to be given the drugs, which we find out at the end is kind of BS. Like if they don't consent, they can be given something to, to consent. And it's kind of this idea that it's okay. It's okay because they're consenting to this. And it was similar mm. in Simplica Girls. There's um there's a doctor who supervises the installation of the Simplica Girls. So it's like it's okay. We're not we're not um doing anything wrong. You know, we've got a doctor. They're giving consent. Like this is this is okay. And I just found yeah. that really interesting. It's like I don't know. It kind of reminds me of the Trump years, where there are all these terrible things are happening, but it's like, no, it's okay because we voted for this, or you know, the politicians mm-hmm. are telling us it's okay, or this is what the people want. It's yeah, mm-hmm. this denial of how bad things really are. Yeah, or they've yeah. taken like sort of a simplistic view of sort of ethics and morality, <laughs> and said, okay, so if you tell me acknowledged, or I can't remember what the what the word acknowledge, was that they said. yeah, acknowledge, then that's consent went, well, that's not consent. You know, that's just a word. It's so same with home in home when everyone just kept saying, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Yeah. Thank, it, they just, they were just words. And that actually also reminds me of the Trump years, right? <laughs> you know, just yeah. saying words that end up not having any meaning. meaning yeah, anymore. it's like the thoughts and prayers that people it, say after that, any tragedy, that's right. right? Exactly. Meaningless, yeah. meaningless yeah. at this point. Yeah. The thing I liked or I related to, I always try to find things to relate to in all the stories in home was when uh, the uh, the main character, <laughs> he goes into that store and he's been away for so long. Uh, he picks up the, the, the Me Vox Max and he asks what it is. And then those those guys are like, well, you, I think you should ask, well, what do I need it for? And then they hand him the Me Vox Min and he still doesn't look at this little, this little card. And I was like, I, that's how I can relate to that because I am not uh, an early adopter of technology. And I, I was like, oh man, how long has this guy been away at the war that it, everything's changed on him? But, uh, well, he's, well, and how just no one can just tell you though. It's like, yeah, yeah what is it though? Like, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. The the difficulties in human communication are something that he did very well. A lot of times, you know, they say someone isn't necessarily listening to you. They're waiting for their moment to talk. And when you say something, people aren't always responding to that. They're responding to what they're interested in based on what's just come up. And that happened a lot in these stories where people are talking a little past each other and not really grasping what the other means or wants, which again, realistic, but also a little stylized. Like, uh, when we talk about his ability to, you know, describe people's inner thoughts, the one thing I found consistently was I never think like any of these characters do, right? My inner voice does not travel along the same paths as theirs. So I, f- I found it interesting, but also I was not directly connected to them because of that. Yeah, I, uh, th- there were a few times when I, I did see myself in it and I definitely could see, like in that last story, the 10th of December, the young boy, <laughs> who's out in the forest, you know, with this whole kind of scenario in his head of what he's fighting for and, you know, and the his love interest and all this. I have nephews who 
do that. Like I can see them in the backyard and they have their branches and they are just and by themselves. They're just like, you know, and there's a whole world going on in their head and I can, I just know it. And my sister, I won't say which one, um, I remember her telling me that, uh, cause I was always, I feel so bad about this, but I was always embarrassed to walk with her to school because she always dressed like really interestingly. I mean, I, now I look back and I'm like, you were your own person, Hannah Laura, and <laughs> you didn't care. And she said, she, she said later, she said, I just always had this internal voice going, you are looking good. You're looking mm-hmm. so good with that orange backpack and those wide white pants. Everyone thinks you are cool. Like, and it just made me think of Al Rooston, you know, and uh, having that internal monologue. So, so even though I couldn't always see myself in there, I could see other people. Um, I could hmm. place other people there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And for me, I had sort of the opposite reaction to not all the stories, but several of them where their their way of thinking or talking just really aligned with my own internal thinking and talking. <laughs> so I I definitely almost became the surrogate in the uh, many of these stories. Spiderhead, Semplica Girls, Al Rooston, especially just. But my favorite story, I think, was my chivalristic fiasco, just because, uh, I mean, it it was the least dark and most fun, I thought, even though it's about a rape. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, uh, let me rephrase that. I mean, it... you can like a story without uh endorsing the elements of the well story. and that's the thing with these dark as if you know yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah that did not come out my mouth the right way <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, stories we haven't talked about yet in the collection was puppy so, yeah not a lot of science fiction but a lot to do with class and and what i kind of gravitated to was the different parenting styles of the two mothers Marie, who was the the wealthy mother who was spoiling her kids with all the material items. That's the video games that was like, what was a beloved? Noble Baker. Noble Baker versus the Italian Lowe's expansion pack. Yeah. And then then Callie, you know, who had this son that she was at her wits end with and found that her only way to keep him from running out into the interstate was to tether him to the tree. And that story, I read that story through a couple of times because the first time I had a hard time transitioning between the two sides, even though they are very different. But just to me, it was a very interesting meditation on parenting. Again, with all the stories, very complex. And I'm not going to advocate for Callie's style over Marie's, but it just seemed like, you know, who loved their kids more? I mean, it's hard to say. They probably both thought they loved their kids and were doing what they thought was right. And and who's to say that one was right and one wasn't? I mean, if the alternative was Callie's son running out into the road, then tethering him to the tree was an act of love in a perverse way just to get him through that time. But, I mean, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm just rambling. It's uh, <laughs> I don't know if anyone else had thoughts on puppy. Yeah, I mean, I also noticed the the different parenting styles that you see in that story, and they're both doing their best, you know? They're both great parents with parental anxiety, and 
they're just trying to do what they think is best in that in the, that situation. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's true. Like they're like the kids don't come with owner manuals, right? <laughs> uh, user manuals. So it's like, yeah, you just do what you you take chances and you make tons of mistakes. The story definitely, and like many of his stories, it there's never a clean cut moral answer out of it. I mean, aside from generally feeling compassion for each other, which did come across in all of the stories that in the end, you know, you feel like you want to be a little more compassionate to these people. But uh, other than that, there wasn't any clear cut like, yeah, this is right. Yeah, this is wrong. Well, okay. Forcing people to commit suicide by injecting them with chemicals is wrong. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there was a lot of uh, moral ambiguity throughout that uh did leave a lot to think about and yeah, it definitely makes this a rereadable collection, I would say. Mm-hmm. But, but Dennis, it's the mandates of science plus the dictates, the <laughs> mandates and dictates of science. And sometimes science sucks. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we move on to our next section, do we have any final words or thoughts on any of the stories or the book as a whole? Did we wonder about the title of the collection, 10th of December? Yeah, I wasn't clear on how that was related to the story or the collection as a whole. Ten stories? But it's also my wife's birthday. Ten stories. And your birthday? My wife's birthday. Oh, Bernadette's birthday, so... Yeah, so it's a nice date. (laughs) Um, I did did look into it a little bit, (laughs) because I was curious, because... December is actually Latin for 10, well, de- deaths, right? And in the, I don't know, the old calendar, Julian, I don't know, calendar, um, it was the 10th month. And symbolically, it's like, yeah, endings and beginnings. Also, 1010, so 10th of the 10, is uh, often like related to um, guardian angels, like trusting that the universe is helping you um, or looking out for you. But in Buddhism, and we know that Saunders is a Buddhist, 10 is one of the most important numbers. There's the 10 hindrances to enlightenment. And then there's the 10 powers of Buddha. There's the 10 ox herders pictures which is an artistic metaphor for the path of meditation. And we also know that George Saunders is, you know, uh, well, maybe you don't know, but yeah, he likes to meditate. Anyway, I don't know, but it's also the end of the book. So the 10th, yeah, I don't know. You could read a lot of stuff into it. (laughs) Plus we use a base 10 numbering system. So 10 is a popular number. I mean, for yeah. a collection that's called 10th of December and features a story by that name, we didn't even talk about that, which I, I mean, is interesting. <laughs> like out of all the stories, this one doesn't stand out. I mean, it's wonderful in its own way. And um, it really doesn't, it doesn't have any of those dystopian or sci-fi elements. And so maybe it's sort of, it stands separately from the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah, I know. When I read the last story, and I did read the last story last because at that point I was reading them in order, uh, <laughs> I, I sort of, I closed it and I just said, well done. You know, like I just felt like that story, <laughs> that that gave me everything I needed, the 10th of December story. Like it just, I felt like, yeah, that was a full meal and I was happy to read it and I felt like a better, I was better for it having read that story. And yet you're right, we haven't explored it at all maybe maybe it's okay we didn't maybe for the readers you know and the listeners they can they can read it and 
leave something untalked about. I, I'm okay with not talking about the title story, but I have to say, Kirsten, you've given way more thought into the title than I ever did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sometimes I get like, well, you get into rabbit holes too, you know, and it's like, oh, and then symbolism. And yeah, it just, yeah, it's an easy thing to to lose yourself in. If we don't have any other comments, it's time for us to move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Anyone want to go first? Okay, I'll go first. Um, this is not going to be a <laughs> <Nice>. surprise. <laughs> um, but I just finished ten, uh, Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of a life interrupted by Suleika Jawad. This is a memoir um, about the author. She was diagnosed with leukemia at 22 and then spent the next four years getting treatment. She was in chemotherapy. She was part of a clinical trial. She actually got a bone marrow transplant. Um, and during this time, she starts a blog and this blog is very popular. And out of the blog comes a column for the New York Times. Spoiler, she she's fine. She survives. And when she gets out of the hospital, she embarks on a road trip, a hundred day road trip, and she visits some of the people who wrote to her through her blog and through her column. And so she visits, you know, cancer survivors. She visits a death row inmate. And it's just, it's so beautiful. It's so inspiring. I think everyone was talking a few years ago about educated and how great educated was. I think this is going to be the new educated. Love it. I've already put it on our list for future books to read for this podcast. I know that there are lots of holds on it. So we're going to wait, I think, a little bit before we read it. But can we also give a plug to Toby's Instagram <laughs> that she has called Toby Hearts Books? Mm -hmm. And she and she does reviews that are succinct and wonderful and gives such a great uh, review um, for, for every book, whether she likes it or not. Oh, thanks. <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I, I could go next. A lot of people have compared George Saunders to Kurt Vonnegut. And so my book recommendation is Welcome to the Monkey House, which is a collection of Kurt Vonnegut short stories. 25 of them. And just like 10th of December, uh, several of them were previously published as individual standalone stories in various magazines. It was his first collection of writing in that he wrote short stories before he transitioned into novels. And before he wrote short stories, he wrote journalistic pieces. So a lot of the stories are written almost in a journalistic style, short sentences, clear, concise, but again, a lot of the similar uh, themes that George Saunders touches on, like uh, a dystopian future, sci-fi, lots of satire, and lots of dark humor. Some of the stories maybe have not aged as well as we have hoped uh, since this came out in the 60s, but others feel as fresh as if they were written today. A couple of standouts. One is Harrison Bergeron, about a future world where everyone is mandated to be equal in every way, extreme equality. So if you happen to have an above uh, average intelligence, the government implants these radio transmitters to interrupt with your thoughts. So it makes you average. If you're extra strong, you have to wear weights to weigh you down. So you, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through. And of course, complications arise. Uh, and the other story I wanted to shout out is called Epicac. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's the name of the world's smartest computer. And it's so smart, it learns about love. 
And the narrator, who is also the, its programmer, uh, enlists Epicac to write love poems that the narrator can then share with his girlfriend, but passes them off as uh, his own. And so Epicac becomes kind of like this go-between between him and his girlfriend. And wouldn't you know, uh, he falls in love with the, his creator's mm-hmm. girlfriend. So a uh, love triangle there with the computer. So that's my recommendation. Welcome to the Monkey House by Kurt Vonnegut. That makes me think of uh, Becky Chambers. Was it Becky Chambers the, where there was the um, the computer and yes, the, yeah, in Long Way to a long, Small Angry Planet. Yeah, 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 and the computer also. Um, well, there was love uh, between one of them, one of the characters, and the computer, and then they had to shut the do a startup of the computer. And that was like really sad because then. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it also made me think there's yeah. that Joaquin Phoenix film a few years ago where the dude falls in love with his phone. Uh, who's voiced <laughs> by, I think Scarlett Johansson. Oh, yeah. uh, she or her. She or oh, her. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 One of those. <laughs> so definitely remind me of that as well. So Trevor, were you worried that someone was going to pick that? Scene? I was worried um, because I know Dennis is a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan oh, that okay. perhaps he may have yeah. picked that collection and, uh, he's, he's not said anything. I can't read his expression on his face, <laughs> whether, whether something's <laughs> happened or not. Uh, uh, that, that was one of the books that I had considered. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I should okay. let you go first. Cause I had a back. No, 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 no. I have a, uh, I didn't select that one. So, oh. that, but I, I did consider it. So yeah. amazing. So why don't you go, Dennis? Tell us what you have. Sure. Uh, I went with something that I thought maybe Trevor would have picked, too. And, and that is Skeleton Crew by Stephen King. I was a big Stephen King fan when I was uh, younger. And uh, I remember specifically Skeleton Crew because I had it a, a paperback that I'd gotten from a garage sale or something like that. And we took it out uh, with us when uh, we went camping. So the whole time we were at the lake and we we're, my family was all fishing on the boat that we had. And I'm sitting there reading Skeleton Crew by Stephen King. I'm not comparing Stephen King to George Saunders directly. They're very different kinds of writers. Uh, I find both of them very interesting. Uh, it's just, it's a good collection of short stories. If you like horror, uh, it's Stephen King at his early finest, I think. Uh, the stories include The Raft. Uh, which was one that really stuck out to me because there was a raft at this lake that we were at. And so when I was out on that raft, I was sometimes a little worried that there would be a monster coming out from the deep, like in the story. So, yeah, it's been a while since I read it, so I'm not going to say too many specific things about it. Just if you like Stephen King at all, uh, if you like stor- short stories at all, enjoy some good horror. Uh, Skeleton Crew by Stephen King will not steer you wrong. Did we mention that home, one of the short stories in the 10th of December, won the Bram Stoker Award in 2011? So just talking about like horror and... Okay, my book recommendation, like I was saying, I am reading a lot more uh, short stories these days. This collection, actually, I haven't read yet, but it's... I'm reading it next. It's this year's Giller Prize winner, How to Pronounce Knife by Suvankam Sumavongsa. I was actually wondering if Toby had read it yet. Oh, that she's got it. It also just came in for her. <laughs> so I'll be interested to, to read your review. So like I said, I haven't read it yet, but the Giller Prize jury described it as a stunning collection of stories that portray the immigrant experience in achingly beautiful prose. I believe Suvankam is uh, Loatian. It's 
also described the emotional expanse, uh, Chronicles, uh, that is, Chronicled is truly remarkable. Her fiction cuts to the core of the immigrant reality like a knife, however you pronounce it. And it's been described as having very precise prose, focuses on seemingly mundane aspects of different people's lives and rooted in simple truths. And she says, I know whenever we encounter stories of immigrants and refugees, they're always sad and tragic, and rightly so, they are. But I feel like that image is very narrow about who we are, who we really are. We're also fun and ferocious and hilarious. So um, I'm looking forward to reading this collection of short stories. Uh, that's How to Pronounce Knife by Suvankam Famavongsa. and I work at the Westwood Library. The book that I'm recommending today is Saturday Night Live writer and comedian Colin Jost's memoir, A Very Punchable Face. Yes, you did hear me correctly. I did say punchable face. The reason that I'm recommending this book is not because Jost is rather humorous, but because he gives the reader a vivid sense of his upbringing. And what's most admirable is how he discusses his mother and her role as a chief in the New York City Fire Department during 9-11. An excellent and surprisingly emotional read. for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, in which we tell short stories about the words or phrases that have been <laughs> percolating in our brains over the past month. Nice. Anyone want to give it a go? Well, you know, I, I have mine right here in front of me. I, I, I don't mind going. Um, as uh, Kirsten's already alluded to, sometimes I go down rabbit holes. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. right now, in the last month or so, I've been rediscovering or discovering uh, cast iron cooking with a cast iron frying pan at home. I've never really used one before. Uh, I haven't done anything crazy with it, like bake a pie or anything, but you know, I'll, 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 I'll do bacon, you know, and I just put the burgers in there, but I've been also <laughs> discovered a, um, a YouTuber who does a lot of cast iron stuff and he goes by the moniker cowboy Kent Rollins. And I'm not sure about this guy. I'm not sure if he's the real deal or if he's a sham, but he has a ton of YouTube videos. Uh, and he actually, we have one of his books in WPL's uh, collection. It's got the unfortunate title of The Taste of Cowboy. And it's a cookbook. <laughs> Uh, and he uses he uses all kinds of like old timey terms and things. And I don't know if it's a put on or if it's for real, but one of the terms he uses is cackleberry. And uh, I had to look it up. He's referencing eggs. Cackleberry was an old-timey term for eggs because hens cackle. And uh, egg is, I guess, the shape of a berry. Apparently, berries were known for any small, roundish, juicy fruit. I know an egg isn't a fruit that doesn't have a stone, seeds, or a pit. Whereas apples uh, were used for any other type of fruit, including sometimes used for different kinds of nuts. And so that's why, uh, if they didn't know what it was, they would call it an apple. So a pineapple was like a, looked like a pine cone, but it was an apple. And in French, like pomegranate, palm is like the apple with lots of seeds and palm de terre is a potato, ground apple, I guess, earth apple. I don't know. Um, so anyway, cackleberry. And I just want to read you, you know, when you click on a website and it says the about thing and then it gives you a biography, this is what it says about cowboy Kent Rollins. Mm -hmm. 
Kent Rollins is from a lost period of time in a dying state of mind when life was simple and character was king. So I think it's a cry for help more than anything. So uh, we'll put a link up to that. And uh, that's my word, cackleberry. Nice. Oh, my goodness. I don't think I can follow that up. Um, mine oh. is so boring compared to that. <laughs> no. um, but I'll just go for it anyway. Um, I used to really like the word facetious. So I chose mm. that. Um, it seems fitting for the book we were discussing as it is defined as treating serious issues with deliberately inappropriate humor. Um, mm. I like to think of facetiousness is kind of like the nicer cousin to sarcasm. Like sarcasm hmm. is meant to be mean or convey contempt or mock, whereas facetious is just just being funny, being inappropriately funny. And then for some extra word nerd points, um, I believe facetious is the only word in the English language with all the vowels in alphabetical order. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Did yeah. you just figure that out? No, <laughs> like, I remember reading it. And I, I should have Googled this before uh, before this conversation because I might be wrong that it's the only word, but it uh, definitely has all the vowels in alphabetical right. order. Interesting. Well, it's, it's Mark Maron likes to say, why Google when you can speculate? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never look at facetious the same way again. <laughs> well, I'll go next. I already alluded to um, the title, My Chivalric Fiasco, that I like that, the, the one term in there, or the one sentence in there, hooray, finally, <laughs> finally a medicated role. And uh, I know you were talking about it too, Trevor, um, as being a, a story that you really liked, and then you got caught up in whether you were allowed to say that or not. But um, <laughs> I loved how when the when the guy took the medication, then all of a sudden, his thoughts were all in sort of Shakespearean wording. My nerd word, though, is fiasco, because I thought I do not use that word enough fiasco. So it is a thing that is a complete failure, especially in a ludicrous or humiliating way. And with these nerd words, I really like to look at the um, etymology of the words. It's always fun to sort of research that. So in the mid 19th century, the word sort of came up fiasco from the Italian, literally meaning bottle or flask, as in far fiasco, make a bottle. So that's the literal meaning. But then it was sort of adopted and entered into the English language in the 18, mid 1880s that figuratively meant fail a performance. So it was more theater slang. And the reason for the figurative sense is unexplained. And so then I found this article calling, uh, that the title is an etymological fiasco. So even just the etymology of fiasco is a fiasco. Like there's just no, <laughs> no rhyme or reason why the word is now taken to meaning this current definition of um, complete failure. So I kind of like that. I kind of like that um, the fiasco is a fiasco. Who knows where it came from? There's all sorts of different ideas. Oxford English Dictionary um, has said that Italian etymologists have proposed various guesses and alleged incidents in Italian theatrical history have suggested to account for the evolution of fiasco. However, the dictionary concludes as do we, that the evolution of fiasco in Italian from flask to flop is of obscure origin. Some things are just never meant to be explained. Fiasco. It's becoming, uh, <laughs> going to be uh, regularly crop up in my, in my vocabulary. 
As an aside, there's an excellent This American Life episode called Fiasco, which has various stories, three or four of fiascos, which is hilarious and very, very worthwhile listening to. Awesome. Can we put that in the show notes? Because I'm going to (laughs) want to listen to that. (laughs) So my nerd word for this month is complicated. We often talk about why we picked our particular word, but I find it fiddly to explain why I chose this one. After all, there's a panoply of perfectly adequate appellations out there from which to choose, so it's an arduous affair to select the most excellent expression available with various variables that each have to be sorted out. Choosing a word each month can be so bewildering that it's a little over one's head to describe the Byzantine mechanism involved without creating a rather puzzling picture. This serpentine and perplexing process is so impenetrable that I struggle to even think how one would convey it without completely confusing the listener. It's a thorny problem that's got me so tied up in knots I could anchor a ship. Every attempt I've made to delineate this delicate dance has been so involuted as to be emphatically abstruse. So why did I choose this word? I'm not sure what to tell you. It's complicated. (laughs) Way to show us all up. You're so facetious. You're so facetious. (laughs) You make the rest of us look like a fiasco. Uh, well, you know, I, I might have been a little intoxicated when I came up with this idea. But. Dennis does this to us every month. This is why it always has to end with him. Oh, my God. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. Next month, we're reading Educated by Tara Westover. According to a review written by Toby... This memoir lives up to the hype. Raised by Mormon survivalists who didn't believe in schools or medicine, the author has aspirations of a life beyond her dysfunctional community. She leaves to pursue higher education, though finds it hard to reconcile her family and faith's beliefs with what she is discovering about the world. Nine homeopathic cures out of ten. (laughs) Have an idea about what we should read next? Let us know. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all of our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to Read. kind of I'm a quick reader but I I think I'm also like a bit of a I mean not a lazy reader but I like I just um sorry